Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good, good. You just stay there the whole time. Yeah, I think it'd be great. Um, so we're going to be in Colossians 3 today, looking at verses 12 through 17. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that passage. And uh, one of the things that I was doing this week as I was kind of winding down one night, just looking for a TV show to watch, um, I, I came across The Office, and it was the garage sale episode uh, where Dwight started off with a thumbtack, and he was like, I'm going to walk out of here with the most valuable item by just the the art of trading, the art of, of manipulating people, really, to be able to get what he wanted. And so it was just this idea of him taking something of no value and trading for something of great value. And he started working his way up from a thumbtack to a candle to a bunch of books and eventually got a telescope until Jim, as we all know, duped him into trading it for this little magic pack of beans. Um, and, and it kind of reminded me, plugging into this week of of kind of a trade-off of, of this old self that we have, and now we're trading up to this new self, but ultimately God's not duping us as if it's just some magic beans that he's trying to give to us, um, but rather it's actually a good trade-off. It's actually something for us that when you put in comparison the old self that we talked about last week, and then in light seeing the new self and the new identity and what it is that we are actually putting on this is not an equal exchange. Um, this is far greater than anything we will ever be able to experience. Um, and, and really, the more we see the new self that we're putting on, makes it easier for us to put off the old self, makes it easier for us to put off um, or put to death what is earthly in us. And so that's really what we looked at last week, uh, put to death what is earthly in you. And, and it's really the former way in which we live our lives apart from Christ. It's, it's the design of this world. It's the deceit of this world. It's the deceit and lust of the enemy. It's anything and everything that is a worldview construct that is not designed by God, but is ultimately designed by man in order to try to provide for you some type of satisfaction or some type of fulfillment in life or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And what we're seeing is, is that it leads to your destruction. It leads to your death. I mean, we see that in Proverbs 14, 12, that there's a way that seems right to a person, but it leads to their death. There's a way that seems right to us that feels right, that might even think right. But ultimately, if it's not designed by God, if it's not designed by Christ, if it's not created for him, for his glory and for our good, then it leads to destruction. And so as we come to know Christ, and he's transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, as we saw in Colossians 1, as we enter into that transformation, there is still something that's going on within us where even though we're in the kingdom of the beloved Son, there is still remnants of the domain of darkness within the members of our body, within our flesh, within our minds, that we are having to cast off, that we are having to put to death, that we are having to, to wage war against within our lives on a daily basis. And this is why Paul uses the language as a believer, as a Christian, that there are things that I want to do in my identity with Christ, 
that I don't do because the things I hate, I continue to do. And so he used to not hate those things. He used to not hate sin. He loved it. He used to not hate deceit. He loved it. He used to not hate persecuting the church. He loved it. And he used to also love putting extra rules and regulations on the people to establish control and to exploit them to ultimately gain his own power. That was the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. And then him being transferred to the domain of darkness finds that within his members, he still wages war, that he still wants to do some of those things. But this new identity, which again, as he says in Philippians, if I count all the things that I had and I compare it to Christ, I consider it rubbish, which in the Greek is just dung. I consider it crap. Like I consider it, I shouldn't use that, but I, I just consider it uh, poop. And so, and, and, and so he's like anything, my, my prestige, my lifestyle, my wealth, my status in the intellect, my, my uh, studying under Rabbi Gamaliel to become the next priest in line over Jerusalem, Anything and everything that was his right, he considers rubbish. He considers worthless in comparison to gaining Christ, to putting on Christ. So at that point, he's willing to throw off anything and everything that would entangle him to ultimately just simply gain Christ. Because in Christ, he's ultimately finding his satisfaction, his fulfillment, his purpose. He's actually finding his true self. So it's not finding your true self from within. It's not finding your true self from, from your feelings. It's not finding your true self based on how the world defines it or, or desires for you to be, as we'll see here in a minute. It's not us conforming to the pattern of this world, but it's being transformed by the renewing of our mind based on how God, who is our creator, created us to be. And so how do we get to who he's created us to be well, the first step is, first and foremost, Jesus transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. First and foremost, it's salvation. Now that we've been saved by His grace, we are now becoming what we say we already are. We are already saints, but we are becoming it as we put on this new identity that we possess. And as we cleanse ourselves of the old self, as we put off the old self, and as you'll see here in a minute, I kind of just use like the language of uh, there's essential and there's essence. Like, it's essential for you to take out the trash and to clean your house. But I hope that's not the essence of life in your home. Because there's more to life than just taking out the trash and cleaning things, fixing things. There's actually life to be had. And that's what we want to get to today, is, is what does that look like? And last week, I know I gave you 13 points for how to kill sin. Um, and actually, I've really been encouraged this week by just discussion revolving around that idea of, of what it looks like for us to put sin to death. And as Colossians 1.28 says, Proclaim Christ and to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. Show you Christ, warn you of sin, and teach you with all wisdom that you may be mature in Christ. And so today we're talking about what it looks like to actually mature in Christ. Not just warning you of sin, but showing you how to then put on Christ. Because if we only focus on killing sin, if we only focus on what we talked about last week, then we only ever see sin. And in fact, we still have our mindset on the things of the earth. 
So if we boil the Christian life down to simply killing sin, we rob ourselves of the deepest hope and the highest joys that are to be had. Yes, every Christian will be killing sin, putting it to death. Any version or distortion of Christianity falls short of what Christ died for if that's all you focus on is putting it to death. Because there's more to it. Now, as I said last week, killing sin is essential to the Christian life, but it's not the essence of the Christian life. So I want to look at this with you together. Colossians 3. We're actually going to pick it up in verse 10 before we get to 12 through 17. Looking at verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have not only put off your old self, which is wasting away, but you've now put on a new self. And your new self looks more and more like the one who created and sustains every corner of the universe. So there's this transformation that is happening where, yes, you are finding your true self in Christ. But that true self in Christ is looking like Christ. Now, it's going to be salted with your personality and your likes and your dislikes, and it's going to be salted with your uh, purpose in life, your giftings, your skill sets, uh, the domains of life in which you abide, in which you live, in which you work, in which you relate with others. All of those things are going to be unique to you as you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But those things are also going to be redeemed to become like Christ in the way in which those things are expressed. So the way in which you think and the way in which you talk and the way in which you love and the way in which you pursue others, the way in which you relate to others, the way in which you work are going to be seasoned and ultimately have Christ protrude through those things so that Christ is glorified in your uniqueness as we put on this new self. As horrible as we looked in our sin where God found us, we are now being rebuilt and refined into his spectacular image. And this language is throughout all of Scripture. We see in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're being made in the image of an infinitely big, perfectly holy God. And listen, that process happens painstakingly slow. One day at a time. As the Bible says, from one precious degree of glory to another which comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 18. I want to show you this because this is an interesting passage. In 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, it says this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What in the world does that mean? Whenever Moses would separate himself to go be with the Lord, he would literally change from one degree of glory to another, so much so that even his physical appearance was changing. And it was impossible for him to not change and transform and become more like Christ by being with the Lord. And therefore, he had to actually veil his face because it wasn't time yet for the Israelites to see the outcome or the transformation of what Christ was about to usher in through the gospel. We see this as it goes down in verse 14 of this passage. But their minds were hardened. And that's important as we see here in a minute as we kind of close this out of, of what it looks like to put on the, the new self. What's the process of that? 
their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what he's saying is when we're in the domain of darkness, we are, like Moses, veiling himself as he is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We, apart from Christ, are veiled to where our hearts are hardened, our minds are hardened, we can't see the Lord, we're in the domain of darkness. And when the Lord reveals himself to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ, through the good news of the gospel, and he transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, the veil is lifted for us to behold God's glory, for us to be able to see him in his true self. And as we see him in his true self, what it does is it changes us. It transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. We literally become more and more like Jesus on a daily basis. And I love that it just refers to one degree of glory to the next in the sense that there is no fast track to sanctification. There's no fast track to spiritual maturity. Like there is no way in which you can just upload it or download it in which in that moment, okay, I am now a fully developed follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way. And this is probably, I mean, honestly, conversations I have with other pastors, I I had a meeting this last week with multiple church planners in the city, and, and we were just having this conversation of like, what are you dealing with like right now as a church planner or as a pastor? What's one of the, the biggest frustrations that you're finding among your people? And we also kind of had to preface it. It can't be finances. It can't be buildings. It can't be COVID. Like we had to, we had to throw out all of the things that are typical examples that we would use of what we're dealing with that's a frustration right now. And, and once we kind of got rid of those things, the number one frustration was, People can't grow or mature fast enough. Because we're just in a, um, we're a fast food society. We're a microwave society. We want things to happen now. Like we won't start a show until the show ends so that we can binge watch it. Right? Like how dare us have to wait a week for the next episode. But this is the way that we want Christianity, this is the way we want our walk with Christ to function. Can we binge our maturity? Can we just knock it out so that I don't have to have that daily rhythm or daily discipline or daily time that I have to give to this? We want it just to happen overnight. And the Bible's telling us it's not the way it works. From one degree of glory to the next. And it's also not just about changing a bad person to make them good. Christianity is not about, when it it comes to one degree of glory to the next, when it comes to being transformed, Christianity is not about making bad people good. Christianity is about making dead people alive. And this is one of the most important things for us to understand because, again, in Christianity, in your walk with Christ, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. 
And that's important to know because if we were boiling it down to just bad becoming good, then when we have bad days, we think God's not working. We think he's not moving. We think he's not utilizing the day in order to change and transform us for his glory and for our good. And so for the fact that it's dead becoming alive means that regardless of the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in, God is using every single scenario and probably more so the areas when we're suffering and when it's bad days and when it's fighting and when it's arguing and when it's finances are hard and when you're just literally working on a constant basis on empty, God is using all of those moments to bring out of death life and vibrancy that are not going to be tied to whether or not it's just going well for you. Because what he wants to ultimately get at is when you strip away, as Paul says, I count everything that I have gained as loss. When we strip all of those things away, are we finding Christ as our greatest fulfillment, as our greatest treasure, as our greatest gift? That regardless of what we're dealing with on a daily basis, we find that new self, that new identity, far greater than anything that we have to put off. So how are we being changed? Back to verse 10. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed, and it's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, what does he mean by being renewed in knowledge? And I hope you're seeing a theme throughout Colossians here where maybe it's even getting very redundant that we're talking a lot about knowledge and teaching because that's the way God designed it. The way he designed it, and he continues to just talk through this as we walk through it. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. We have not ceased to pray for you. This is Paul talking about praying for the church in Colossae. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual and understanding, so as to then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that is fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then increasing in the knowledge of God. So he kind of sandwiches these two together. First of all, putting on the new self is not something that we do. It's something that we know. Putting on the new self is not something that we do, but it's something that we know. And in particular, it's someone we know. Notice how knowledge is the beginning and the end of this kind of spiritual growth. Knowledge is the beginning and the end of the spiritual growth. Knowledge equips us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You may be filled with the knowledge of his will, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk. It literally can be read, be full in the knowledge of Christ so that you may walk with Christ and then increase in the knowledge of him. So if you think about this in a relational aspect, when we come into a relationship with Christ, when he transfers us over, we're in this relationship with him, the first command is, get to know me. Get to know me. Be full of everything that I am. Know me. And then you're going to be able to walk with me in a manner that's worthy to walk with me. Now remember, we are chosen ones, holy, blameless, righteous saints. So we are worthy to walk with him. 
However, there is a process, a design of lifestyle, and which is worthy of the identity in which we bear, the name in which we bear. You are chosen. You are holy because I am in you and you are in me. Therefore, walk in this manner that is worthy of me. And as you know me, increase in knowing me. So what he's saying there is it's kind of an interesting play on the language in which you are to know me fully, but yet never get tired of getting to know me. You are to know me fully, but also as you continue to get to know me and increase in knowing me, there's going to be a deeper level of intimacy. And so we are to grow in this deeper level of intimacy with Christ, be full and constantly increase at the same time, which doesn't make sense. It's an overflow of this. The Christian maturity is not only marked by sins that have been put to death, but by a deeper personal knowledge and of intimacy with God. And it's also a deeper commitment to his people, the church. Ephesians 4, which again, the Ephesians and Colossians, both written same time, same place, same jail cell. They parallel one another. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's just church structure right there. But here's the reason until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's two things that are happening as we increase in our knowledge of God and as we increase in our knowledge and intimacy with Christ is that we are going to know Him deeper and be more intimate with Him, but we are also going to be then invited in and know deeper and be more intimate with His body. That is His church mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Because here's an interesting thing to think about. The sins that we talked about last week, the kind of list that he provides that I summed up into two categories, which is lust and anger. Both of those things exploit and harm others, right? Lust, in all regards, sexually exploits others in order to harm them, in order to gain control over them, in order to dominate over them, in order to use them as an object. And anger is the same thing. Anger exploits others in order to show dominance and control over them, in order to destroy them, or in order to ultimately belittle them as a under or less than image bearer of God because you put yourself in that position. I am the judge. I am the creator. I am the person who deems you less than. And therefore, out of that, bitterness and anger is going to come out because I don't value you for who God's created you to be. And so when you reverse those things or you put those things off, what he's ushering in is then the opposite. Putting on the new self does not lead to exploiting others. And it does not lead to dominating others. Love, as it says in Philippians 1.9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, it leads us to only one thing, deeper love with God and deeper love with others. That's what this new self that we are putting on is ultimately going to produce. 
Love does not sexually exploit other people. Love does not seek to dominate and defeat others with our angry worldviews. Love does not deceive others by manipulation so that we gain from them what they lose. As we grow from one degree of glory to another, unity and love become the outcomes of this new humanity that God is ushering in, that he is ultimately establishing. And the amazing thing is this is actually what Israel was supposed to exhibit or express as a nation, a nation created by God, under God, to be God's chosen people. They were supposed to be this humanity in which everyone else benefited from, but instead, because they were stiff-necked, rough people, they exploited others. And God ultimately, in his plan of redemption, ushered in Christ to create the new humanity that Israel really just shadowed. They were not the substance, as we see in Colossians. So we are this new people. And the new you, as we deepen our knowledge of God in relationship with him, we discover new aspects and expressions of this new self. So what does this new you look like? Let's look at it in verses 12 through 17 here. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, the new you is not defined mainly by what you have put off, by the sins you have put to death, but by the evidence that Christ is living in you by his Spirit. See, as Christians, we are not defined by what we say no to, but by whom we finally say yes to. And as we say yes to Christ, these things become the evidence that we've actually said yes to Christ. This is how he says in John that they will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Not by the, and, and this is where you make the biggest differentiation between just intellect, but knowledge that actually leads to transformation. Because if you have the intellect, without the transformation that leads to love, then you're just still in the same position of dominating others. That's what the Pharisees are, are, are being convicted of constantly by Jesus Christ, is you think you know me, but you don't. You just know facts about me. But you've not been transformed by me. Because if you were, you would love, and you would not hate. You would forgive, and you would not judge. 
Here's the scary reality. You can avoid pornography completely. You can refrain from ever boiling in anger. You can never break any laws and still hate Jesus. See, we've got to have the reason for putting those things off. And it's putting on Jesus. I think the worst life to live is a life that's trying to be Christian without Christ. I think it's the worst life to live. Honestly. Because there's no joy in it. There's no pleasure in it. There's no satisfaction. Because Christ is our satisfaction. He's the only reason we're doing what we're doing. Believing what we're believing. Living out what we're living out. It's incredibly difficult with Christ as our sufficiency. I can't imagine it without. If you hear the summons to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, and only grumble over what you have to give up or grieve over the remaining sin in your life, you haven't heard the beauty of what Paul is saying. If you've made war against sin, you are now being made into something new and better. The Spirit is not only empowering you to say no where where you've said yes a thousand times before, He's also empowering you to say yes in ways that you've never been able to imagine before. As you put on this new self, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, you are, as Colossians 1.11 tells us, you're being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Like, we don't even have to muster up the ability to do this. He provides for us the strength to be able to put on this new self. Yes, we deny ourselves when temptation comes. Yes, we grieve whatever sin remains in us. But we deny and we grieve, and we then live and endure with joy. See, people stop committing sins for all kinds of reasons, but no one enjoys Jesus without God's help, without God making us entirely new. Put off whatever remains of the old you, but don't stop just at killing sin because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which means he has created us with a life that has a purpose that is going to lead to others coming to know Christ by the way we live our lives, by the way we profess Christ, by the way we evangelize Christ, by the way that we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, and that there is no, I firmly believe this because of what the Apostle Paul says, there is no greater joy to experience in life than seeing a lost person come to know Christ. I don't think there's anything in the entertainment world. I don't think there's anything in the pleasure world. I don't think there's anything that will provide for you greater joy and experience than seeing someone be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Wholeheartedly believe that. And I believe Paul says that and, and understands that because of him being able to say, man, I, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ if it meant my fellow brethren would come to know Christ. Because he knows in that he would experience the greatest joy seeing them come to know him. 
put on by the power of His Spirit what no one else in the world can have any other way. God gave us new life in Christ, not just to say no to sin, but to say yes to a thousand other things in love. Here's the reality. Like, think about it this way. The only command in the Garden of Eden was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That was the only thing God gave them to say no to, which meant they could say yes to everything else in creation that existed. Like, it baffles me when people try to debate Christianity and say, why would God, can you imagine the gig that they had? Like, this is the deal that was made is, is I'm creating you and I'm placing you in this perfect garden and you have freedom to do anything and everything that you want because in word and deed, it's all mine. It's going to glorify me, whatever you want to do. Don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because there needs to be a type of law or abiding relationship that keeps God as God and us as creation. There's got to be limits. There's got to be boundaries. Because if there weren't, we'd be omnipresent, we'd be omnipotent, we'd be all-knowing, we'd be all of those attributes of God that would make us ultimately God. So he creates limits to keep us creation and him creator. So the one limit was just simply one no. Don't do this one thing. And you're infinitely free to do anything and everything else. And now we actually, because of Christ, have the ability to live that out in perfect relationship with him. Because the difference between us and Adam and Eve is... They did not possess the power over death, sin, and hell to be able to say no. That's why ultimately in the greatest story ever written by God himself, Jesus Christ, I mean, do you think it was an accident? I mean, this is, and I know this stretches our minds. This is kind of beyond what what we in this finite life right now can understand. But the cross is at the epicenter of God's story and it's his design and it's his writing. It is his heart. It is his mind who has put it all into existence. The entire story, there's not one aspect of it that God was like, whoops. Didn't think about that. Didn't see that coming. Judas surprised me. It was all his plan so that there would be an ultimate sacrifice where God displays the greatest, greatest aspect of love. Let me lay down my life for you. No greater aspect of of literally expressing love for another than to lay down your life for them. So let me create everything in a way in which I'm going to have to do that to display my greatest attribute as God, which is love. to then be able to use that same love to defeat the very thing that separated us from him. The choice to rebel. So Christ on the cross, him dying and then defeating death, 
sin, evil, deception, anything and everything that we are putting off. Him exercising his authority over it by raising to new life gives us the strength to now, if we were living in the garden, which again, we will, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will never have to worry about that again. We will never have to worry about ever having any type of rebellion from the Lord because in Christ, the authority has covered all aspects of creation, including our limits and boundaries. This is the new self that he's giving us that the sin you're dealing with today, you can actually say no to because of the new self that has been put on. Ephesians 4, and 24 says it this way, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is kind of a sandwich thing. It's like, how do we actually put on the new self? We put off the old self, we put on the new self, but how do we do that? And he sandwiches it with this verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I think too often we look past the mind, what we think to focus on the heart, what we feel and love. I'll put on the new self when I feel it. I'll put on the new self when I love it, when I desire to. Let's be honest. How many of us as believers, as Christians, are struggling with the desire to put on the new self? We're waiting for the day when it feels good to put it on. I don't read because I don't want to. I don't have that desire to. We wait for the desire. It's not going to be there. Because the heart is informed by the mind. And yes, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Jen Wilkin, the heart cannot feel what the mind does not know. And that's why as he, as he literally has just interweaved throughout entire book of Colossians, hide to knowledge, hide to knowledge, increase in knowledge, know Him, dwell on His Word, meditate on it. In another place, Paul says that we are not to be conformed to this world's manner of thinking, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Listen to this in Romans 12, 1-2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. I want you to present yourselves as worthy of the identity by which you bear. If you're in Christ, present your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So an important thing to draw from Romans 12 is the language of being conformed and transformed because they are two different things, drastically different things. The the world is preaching to our minds one thing, asking us to be conformed to it. Think this way. Dress this way. Act this way. Relate this way. Work this way. The world in everything, whether it's media, whether it's movies, whether it's music, whether it's 
friendships, anything and everything has an agenda. And ultimately, because it's as we're seeing these kind of two categories of put to death what is earthly in you and set your minds on what is above, set your minds on heavenly things, there's only two things in which transformation can be derived from. We're either being derived from things that are coming from the world or things that are coming from heaven. Nothing else is created. Nothing else, those are the only two places. So we're either being defined by the world or we're being defined by heaven. And what he's saying here is don't be conformed to anything that is being created or defined by the world. And what it means to be conformed to it is this is very important for us. The Greek term for this conforming is syskematiso, which means to pattern oneself after, to mimic, or to copy. To pattern oneself after, to mimic, or to copy. It's simply, let me see what they're doing, and let me try to do that. You're telling me to dress this way? I need to dress this way. You're telling me to talk this way? I need to talk this way. You're telling me to believe this way? I need to believe this way. I'm just mimicking. I'm copying. I'm patterning it. But it's actually not my myself. It's not my true self. It's not derived from my personality or my uniqueness. But the word transformed is quite different than simply to pattern oneself after, to mimic, or to copy. And this is what differentiates Christianity from any other belief system or worldview is because every other belief system and worldview is to pattern after, is to mimic, is to copy. Christianity, to be transformed is metamorpho in the Greek, which means to be changed into another form, to transform or to literally transfigure. It's to take one thing like a caterpillar and become a butterfly. There's still a uniqueness there that these were two of the same things, but now completely different things. Because there's a metamorphosis that is actually happening. There is your old self that you were, and you are now being transformed into the new self. You are not just mimicking or copying Christianity. You are becoming something completely new. Best way to sum this up, in Christianity, you can't fake it till you make it. You can't. You can't pretend to be Christian. It's impossible. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self is not simply mimicking how to be Christian. You must be transformed, made new, made into a completely different identity. How is this accomplished? As it says in Romans 12, by the renewing of your mind in Christ. How do you do that? How do you renew your mind in Christ? And if you're looking for a list of what to put on, like I gave you last week of the 13 points, I don't have 13 points for putting on the new self. I have one point for putting on the new self. Read your Bible. That's it. It's that simple. That simple. Got to get into the Word of God. Because it is the knowledge of God. It is the living and active 
Christ. It is the, it, think about it this way. You have God, who we cannot see, who is invisible. You have Christ, who is the visible representation of who God is. Do you want to know God? Look to Christ. How do we know Christ? He lived 2,000 years ago. I can't just, hey, you want to grab coffee this week? Got some questions for you. I want to get to know you a little bit better. Can't just go do that. Now, yes, I've got the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's with me, and the Holy Spirit is, is omnipresent, so he can go grab coffee with me just as he goes and grabs coffee with you and sits down and, and has a conversation. And as you're praying to God, the Spirit's just shot blocking those prayers because you don't know what to pray for. And he's just sending up the actual prayers that you should be praying for as a holy and beloved chosen one of his. And God is then answering those prayers. And if you're like, that sounds heretical, it's in Romans 8, okay? So yes, there is that aspect of it. But Christ, who is the visible representation of the invisible God, how do I know him? Well, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. As we see in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word that is God is Jesus. And the Father, as He inspires the prophets and as He inspires the apostles, and as we see Jesus Himself testify as He's walking on this earth, refers to everything that is written in the Scriptures as the what? Word of God. We want to know God? Know Christ. We want to know Christ? Know the Word. Because the Word is the living and active, visible representation of who Christ is. Who Christ is. And so to know Christ, we need to know His Word. We need to get into it. In order to have your minds renewed, which leads to transformation and putting on the new self, read the Bible. It's Read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, plaster it everywhere your eyes can see. I love what Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 says. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How many times have we heard that? The greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Right, so these words that I'm teaching you, they got to be on your heart in order for us to love the Lord our God with all our soul, with all our might, and with all our heart. How do we get the words on our heart? Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Do you want, I mean, that could be jewelry, that could be tattoo, that could be whatever, fill in the blank. It's whatever you want to put there. Just get it on your hand. They shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Has anyone ever been those people that like sticky note everything? Like you got sticky notes on your mirror in your bathroom, you got sticky notes like at the door handles when you're leaving the house, you got sticky notes on the fridge, like the fridge, 
you know, just keeping it chill. But like, has anyone ever done that? Like sticky note people in here? No? Okay. That's fine. I don't have another example for it. But there are ways in which we can get within front of us daily reminders of God's word. And honestly, just where we're at in, in human history, we have far more access to be able to do this than anyone who's ever lived. It's true. I was just reminded this week, I average, and this is probably a confession, five hours a day on my phone. Don't gasp. I'll, let's just compare after. I'm sure it's the same. Me and Josh, every week, he's like, I'm 10% down. I'm like, I'm 20% up. Shingles. Anyways. <laughs> but one thing that I've done at different seasons, right now it's not. I, the boys are my home screen. But I've had a verse up. And if I'm spending five hours, that means at least probably 30, 40, 50, I don't know how many times it breaks down when I actually just pull it out and look at it, I'm seeing a verse. I'm seeing a scripture. That's the doorposts that I'm seeing every day. That's as I'm leaving the house with the gates, I'm pulling the phone out to see whether I'm putting in driving directions, uh, which it automatically tells me, you're 23 minutes away from Indy Coffee Roasters. Like it knows exactly where I'm going before I get there. Just get it in front of you. That's what put on the new self. Get the Word of God in front of you. Read it. Figure out times when you can read it throughout the week. You want to dive in with the community aspect? Ask us when there's going to be another Bible study where we can get together on a regular basis and dig in. You want to meditate and memorize it? Memorize it. I would love for us to bring back Jewish custom and tradition that when they started at the age of five, they started memorizing the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. By the age of nine, they had it memorized. And then from there, from the age of nine to 12, they would memorize up to the wisdom literatures, up to like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. They had it memorized. And then by the age they were 15 or 16, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. And that was just Jewish elementary school, grade school. That's what they did. I mean, we've lost the art of memorization. I know that 100%, because we're always like, what's that verse? So-and-so, like, do good to others, maybe do good to you, or something like that. Godliness is next to cleanliness. I think that's in there. Like, we don't know, like, we don't have the Bible memorized, like, what it was in the day. And, and, I remember, and, and so I kind of, like, skipped this whole generation of, like, the, um, I don't even know what they called them. Come on, like, those that were raised in the church in the elementary years where you had to, like, you had the Bible drills where you memorized and you, like, competed against others. Bible Bowl? Well, that's the cool one. There's, there's other ones that were not Bible Bowl. It was, like... Uh, Bible drill, that was it, Bible drill. Yeah, that one sounds more like army-driven and like not enjoyable. Bible Bowl, I could get behind that. It's like Super Bowl. Anyways, 
These kids, they just memorize scripture like nonstop. I remember when, when I became a youth pastor, I had to catch up. Because at that point, I had only been a Christian for about five years and then became a full-time pastor. And at that point, I was like, okay, I, like, I skipped out on all of the, the, the early on Old Testament stories. Like, who's David? No idea. So I remember actually like asking the children's pastor, I was like, hey, for a season, can I just like teach the children's church for like a couple of years? That'd be great. Can I do that? Sure. So I'm just learning it two days before going in and teaching these stories to these students, these kids. I had no idea. We don't have any idea anymore these days. We don't know God's word. We don't know his word. We don't know Christ. We don't know Christ. We don't know God. That's it. I got nothing else to tell you to put the new self on other than read his word. And it doesn't have to be begrudgingly. Again, you're holy, you're blameless, you're righteous. It's not to earn his favor by how much you read, how much you study, how much you meditate. You don't need him to love you more. He loves you infinitely because of Christ in you. He's already well pleased with you. So this is not a Bible thumping, get into your Bible heart. How dare you if you don't? This is a you're robbing yourself of all the joy that is to be had and the fulfillment of life and the satisfaction that is to be had in Christ as you get to know him by increasing in your knowledge of him. That's all it is. I want more for you. Therefore, get more from him in his word. Father, we thank you so much for our new self. God, we would be living through this life hopeless and helpless, frustrated, not understanding why what we're striving after is never actually providing for us what we're hoping. And then Christ comes into the picture. And he provides for us everything that our lives were designed for, which is enjoying him as our greatest treasure. So, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he revealed himself to us and that he revealed to us our old self that was dead. And he revealed to us his gospel, his good news, that he can forgive us of our sins because of his death on the cross. He paid the penalty. Because he paid that penalty, he can forgive us and not only just forgive us and pardon us of our sins, but he can then give us his righteousness so that we can actually be in a relationship with you on a daily basis because you consider us holy and beloved saints. And then you command us every day to put on this new self, to get to know this new self that is in Christ, to have compassionate hearts, and to be kind, and to be meek, and to put others before ourselves, because we actually find more joy in that than we do trying to find our own gain in this world. We become other-minded rather than selfish. So Father, thank you for what you do. And I pray, God, that as we 
Continue opening your word and reading scriptures. That you would increase our spiritual understanding and wisdom. Be able to know you in a deeper way. Intimate way. And that that alone would allow us to be strengthened. Continue to say no to sin. Things we hate. They say yes to Christ and all that comes with him and his inheritance. That we find satisfaction there and there alone. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at